Welcome to Insights on Demand, a podcast from Business Talent Group, where we talk to the world's best independent talent about the future of work and other pressing business issues. I'm Leah Hoffman, and today's guest is Sandy Torkins, a life science supply chain strategy and turnaround expert. Sandy has helped major life science companies simulate and respond to supply chain disruptions, and he also served as lead strategist for the UK Department of Health during the swine flu pandemic in 2009. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you very much, Leah. So in 2009, you helped the UK's Ministry of Health change its operating model in response to the swine flu pandemic, which was straining pharmaceutical supply chains. Are there lessons that you learned from that experience that could inform how agencies and organizations react to the shortages we're seeing now? Well, you know, to be honest, the, the challenge they had then is a challenge that is very similar to now. Is we've got a, we've got an exponential uh, increasing demand, and so the only solution companies see to react to this demand increase is actually to put more stocks in the market channels. So basically, the pharmacies or the the, the local distributors. Getting your stock increased in one distribution center, fairly simple, that's all linear. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to meet demand variability in every pharmacy, and in the UK, we at that moment, we had 5,500 distribution points for antivirals. It's kind of like trying to uh, guess the lottery numbers for the weekend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the problem here was that there was like a two, three day lead time to replenish those pharmacies mm-hmm. and if we look at the corona numbers you know you've got five you've got five people today who have corona in the village tomorrow we'll have 15 the day after we have 30 we have 45 and the day after we have 105 mm-hmm. if i have a three day lead time if i place my order today based on five people uh, I'm, I'm a little bit outnumbered by the time the delivery arrives so you know they were either trying to put a lot of stock there with the risk that you would actually put the stock in the pharmacies where the pandemic would not hit and you would have shortages in the other places. Mm-hmm. Or typical response is, let's try to get our forecast better. Right. Which is, to be honest, a reaction I still hear today, also with my life sciences clients. If we can't, if we can't get demand variability to be met, let's make forecasting better. It's the fault of the forecasting guy. <laughs> that doesn't work. And it mm-hmm. doesn't work in a pandemic situation where demand raises exponentially. Can you explain why forecasting doesn't work in a pandemic situation? All forecasting is based on past experience or past demand. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of extrapolate. A good forecaster correct this with knowledge of the future. Hey, it's going to be Easter. People are going to, are going to buy eggs. It's going to sure. be nice weather this, this, uh, this weekend. We're going to have barbecue weather. People are going to buy more meat. Mm-hmm with a pandemic, uh, first of all, the demand curve is exponential. So it's very hard to forecast. And the problem is also location. You do not know where those patients are going to, uh, are going to be. Right. So the only option you have is literally cater for all eventualities and have stock everywhere, which is economically not possible. And to be honest, from a supply chain point of view, not possible either because there is no company that can produce enough product right. to, go, to, to go and fill that in mm-hmm. time. So if you can't forecast your way out of the problem, what can you do? This is the moment people are finally open to listening to something that is different. Mm-hmm. So what we did with the UK was instead of trying to forecast and then take an order and pack that order and transport it there and have vans delivering it, we basically said, okay, let's just do away with this. Let's organize milk runs. Let's put a whole bunch of vans with antiviral medicine on the road. And every day, just like a milk van, they will go past a certain number of pharmacies, 
stop, just ask them how much patients they had that day mm-hmm. <laughs> and just replenish them. So you didn't have that lead time. Mm. This was obviously suboptimal from a cost point of view because now I'm not only delivering to the pharmacies that needed the goods, I'm driving along all the pharmacies. But when we weigh this off against how much stock they had to put out there, which you know, I remember in those days, the first, the first shift of stocks they would put out there was 400 million pounds. So I would say about $550 billion mm-hmm. uh, for a country of 50 million people. It was England only. Right. Multiply that by five or six to get the, the numbers for the U.S. That would mean in, the, in U.S. terms, you would have to put out there for three, four billion dollars of stock knowing it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. So that basically allowed us at that moment to put that operating model in place for the time of the crisis or the pandemic. And afterwards, the NHS simply could revert back to their old, their old way of working. So we were kind of lucky that we had a listening ear at that moment to be able to put that reactive way of operating in place and with a government that is less focused on profit, mm-hmm. but because the NHS is government run and we're like, you know, we, we were okay to suboptimize costs very rapidly because we, we turned this whole thing around on, on two weeks about. Just to clarify, the supply chain issues you were working on then were specifically for swine flu related therapies, right? Because now we have a situation where there's concern about the supply chain, not just for masks and ventilators, but for lots of other medications. So we were dealing with the products that were necessary for patients having the swine flu. We did not incur in those days issues with the supply chain of other products because there was no lockdown. The Mm -hmm. the issue we have today, obviously, is compounded by the fact that there has been lockdowns and that obviously there are supply issues to the pharma industry as well from a materials point of view as logistics companies not being able to work at full capacity. So how would you recommend that organizations today start to unravel their supply chain issues? I'd start by looking at what can you do today. And there we need to look at the two elements we have in this crisis. There is the normal challenge of rapidly increasing demand for your pharma products. Mm -hmm. And obviously your internal capacity quite often cannot follow this. And then this issue is made worse by global supply chains basically stopping raw materials, for instance, from China not arriving. Right. I would say that the very first thing as a company you need to do is concentrate your efforts. Uh, Trying to dwell now on, oh, what are we going to do to make ourselves independent from the Chinese for raw material uh, supply? Guys, we're too late now to ask this question. Only look at what you can still affect today. And unfortunately, if I'm looking at a pharma company, there is not much you can do because you can't increase capacity, you can't swap suppliers because there is all the regulatory uh, mm-hmm. constraints around this. Right. So the only thing you can do is be kind of brave and actually say, okay, let's now focus on speed and reactivity. That does mean some optimizing manufacturing costs, but for instance, by putting people on paid overtime, mm-hmm. working at weekends. Yeah, we know it's expensive, but we have to dare to break that constraints. In countries with labor law constraints, we might have to ask the government to allow for a while for people mm-hmm. to work a little bit more and be paid in a different way. And you also have to obviously reshuffle priorities between products potentially, whereby you actually have to decide on what products are less important to produce today mm-hmm. or to, for instance, pass quality control, because quite often it's a matter of 
how fast can I get something through quality control in, in pharmaceuticals and then uh, be faster to the market with those, with those critical products. So for today, I would say concentrate your efforts really on what you can do. If I'm then looking at, and, and obviously you always have to see it as a, let's say an economics exercise, not an mm -hmm. accounting exercise. Your cost by definition will not be optimal by having people paid overtime. But you've got to see that it's an extra demand. So what you're going to do is exploit maximum these existing overheads anyways. It's an increase in sales with a smaller and marginal increase of costs. And in the end, economically, you'll be much better off actually trying to capture this demand increase than not doing so because of accounting, I would say, accounting constraints. So I understand that a lot of the largest life science companies have stockpiled ingredients, maybe six months to a year's worth. Are they starting to feel this pain yet based on the companies that you've spoken with? The, the problem is, you know, indeed, the pharma companies have stockpiled, but quite often they have stockpiled the products at a raw material level or at, let's say, the active pharmaceutical ingredient level. Mm -hmm. that, that still means I do not have the package with the American flyer in it or with the flyer for Canada or the flyer for Mexico. And that still means I still need to tablet it, or I still need to put it in vials, I still need to pack it, I still need to send it out, and I need to get through quality control everywhere. Mm -hmm. So the companies that are actually looking at this today really need to think about how am I going to produce, get things to quality, down to quality, get the test done, you know, without queuing times or whatever, push things to quality as fast as possible, move to the next stage, and potentially also shipping things, I would say at risk, and when I say ship at risk, the product could move already to the, the distribution center somewhere mm -hmm. the other side of the country, mm -hmm. while you don't have the results yet from quality in. Uh, yeah. And it might be that it arrives there and quality then says, sorry guys, you can't sell it. But to be honest, the worst thing that happened then is you waste the truck rider of product that you can't sell. A risk right. worth taking, I think, in this situation. There's certainly been talk about creative solutions when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, like 3D printing ventilators, people are making masks at home. When you think about the disruptions that this pandemic has brought to the life science industry, what sort of out-of-the-box thinking would you recommend? I can only encourage at this moment people actually, you know, making masks and so on. They're all non, they're all not regulated uh, items. My fear a little bit is that we're going to put a lot of things on the market that are not only, I wouldn't say they would be dangerous, but they're not efficient. Mm -hmm. They're going to give people a false sense of safety. And, uh, you know, people going out with masks that are totally ineffective or breathing apparatus arriving at the hospital that has been not tested really from a medical point of view and then thinking we have the capacity. I have a real worry because this, you know, in Europe, we call this panic football. When the, goal, mm -hmm. the ball is just in front of your goal and you just kick it in any direction to get it away. That's a little <laughs> yeah. bit what it feels like. And politicians add a little bit to that, unfortunately, to this panic football of let's first react and let's, then, let's afterwards think about the consequences of this. Right. Uh, yeah, right. To return to supply chains for a moment, do you think this is going to change the pharmaceutical supply chain? Obviously, there's been some comment about reducing reliance on single countries like India or China. Do you think that's going to happen? Is it too soon to say? Uh, I basically hope that this is going to be a serious wake-up call that the supply chains were waiting for. Because when I look at it, there's like three things, 
three points that came to mind uh, when I look at the weaknesses of the current supply chains. First of all, 15, 20 years ago, when I was working with the likes of AstraZeneca or JSK or J&J, they were always asking us to simulate supply chain disruptions. You know, a hurricane in Puerto Rico basically wipes out the factory or tears the roof off and we can't produce for six months. Yeah. We have contamination. How do we deal with this? When we look at the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, what that has done is there is no room anymore for contingency planning or excesses. Mm-hmm. And it's been actually held by the fact that we've hardly had any proper disruption scenarios, especially at the global basis since yeah. then. So management of companies, you know, they've not seen these things happening. They're under pressure of be as lean as possible, be as tight as possible. And this thinking has a little bit vanished since then. So there is little padding, but also little, I would say, capability in companies of people who still know how to react and shift to another operating model. The second point is, you know, management and, you know, sorry to say, but management of a lot of companies have been stuck in the dark ages. Uh, Today, we still have companies working with one operating model that has to supply all the markets and has to supply all the products. Mm-hmm. And then for everything that's a little bit different, we have an exception. So most of my clients I arrive at, 70% of the product goes to the normal chain. And then for 30%, they have 27 different other exceptions to work these, with then obviously an army of people that manages all these exceptions. Right. When you talk to people and you say, guys, why don't we have two or three operating models? that could cater for 95% of your products. Well, that is difficult to manage. That means a shift change quite often in the organization. That means often different people we need. It means teaching to everyone a different way of working. But it could have helped massively in a situation like this, because if you have, for instance, a fast way of supplying and a cheap way of supplying, well, when you have a crisis like this, you can easily shift from one system to the other. Something Mm -hmm. today not possible. And this, I would say, this openness to have two or three solid operating models in the future, hopefully, will be there again, because a lot of people will have learned their lesson. Mm-hmm. I think the third thing really to your problem is supply chains still seen a lot as moving pallets. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the guy who does day-to-day logistics, it's not as important as manufacturing quite often you know manufacturing unit cost is more important than end-to-end supply chain cost mm-hmm. it's not seen as the orchestrator between supply and demand the market so supply and revenue and yeah as a result if you're always playing second violin it's a little bit difficult to obviously get in the lead and and really um i would say influence the design of the company because in this case you know why is it in earlier when you said how should people react or companies react? Why is it they can on, they only have limited uh, possibilities to react? Is that because by design they've limited themselves to only have a few options? Well, if you wanted to devise a global stress test for the life science industry and many other things, you couldn't have come up with a better scenario. No, this this, this is a global stress test for everyone. I think you know where I see this going is you know one companies again starting especially in life sciences starting to think of disruption planning simulation around this mm-hmm. companies also starting to think of implementing as i said several uh, operating models or a few operating models that they can swap from one to the other and obviously also rethink their their sourcing you know if this crisis shows anything you know it's obviously that 
all the cheap and normal uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients come from China or India. Right. Uh, and here the problem is not only it's not only a problem of lead time of getting it over or logistics that the Chinese say sorry we we basically don't ship anything to the U.S. or something or vice versa. The problem is also that you have concentration. If I have five, six suppliers and all the demand increases, I can split over five, six suppliers today. We've pushed ourselves into a corner whereby there is only one supplier. And then we've told that supplier that he has to work as lean as possible, which means he has no upward flexibility to react to a crisis. Mm -hmm. So this trade-off between flexibility of the supply chain and cost per unit is something companies really are going to have to bring back on the table because that's long overdue and definitely the last 10 years since the last financial crisis has been going way too much in the direction of cheapest cost per unit. But I would call, I would call that like, you know, it's, it's false precision. Right, right. Interesting. Well, thanks again for talking with us. My guest is Sandy Torikens, an independent life science supply chain strategy and turnaround expert. And I'm Leah Hoffman for Business Talent Group's Insights on Demand podcast. In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking with other independent experts about the unique challenges companies face in these unprecedented times, from business culture to business continuity. Subscribe for these insights and more wherever you get your podcasts. And visit businesstalentgroup.com to start a project with Sandy or any of our other independent life science experts. Thanks for listening.